Welcome to The Ear, brought to you by The Eye. This is Jordan Allen, your host. This week, we are examining how Colombia, both literally and figuratively, demolished remnants of its involvement in U.S. nuclear history. I personally learned about the nuclear history from my feminism and postmodernism teacher this semester. At the start of the class, she explained that members of Columbia conducted a large amount of research for the atomic bomb inside of Pupin's walls. She mentioned the irony of the location of our class and its subject matter. We studied the suppression of marginalized voices in the same building where a weapon that silenced hundreds of thousands was created. Yet this gigantic part of Columbia's history is largely ignored on campus. This week, Arminda Downey Mavermatis investigates how and why Columbia has chosen to destroy its nuclear legacy instead of choosing to reckon with it. In 1947, the clock begins ticking. We were seven minutes to midnight. In 1949, the clock leaps forward three minutes to midnight. It moves back and forth as time moves forward. Four minutes as Ronald Reagan takes office. 17 in 1991. Two minutes today. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, a journal made up of nuclear policy and science articles, has been cataloging the risk of nuclear war from a few years after World War II onward. Their most recognizable work takes the form of the Doomsday Clock, the clock that is now two minutes away from Armageddon. Every time nuclear tensions take a turn, the clock moves closer to midnight. It is with reference to what I said earlier and other key factors that are spelled out in our clock statement that we've come to a grim assessment. You've probably seen the press for it. Somber scientists stand in front of a clock. As of today, it is two minutes to midnight. They warn us, the public, that forces widely beyond our individual control inch us closer and closer to nuclear winter. But despite the imminent threat, the idea of nuclear war is an abstract one. The photos of nuclear warheads and angry-looking foreign officials should frighten us. But ultimately, the nuclear provocations play out over Twitter, the timeline refreshes, we move along. The world doesn't fundamentally change when we move closer to midnight. You've probably never touched a nuclear warhead. But if you've taken a class in Schirmerhorn, in Havemeyer, in Pupin, congratulations! You've walked through pieces of nuclear history. While the University of Chicago has a 12-foot-tall, abstract statue and exhibitions commemorating its role in nuclear research, Columbia is publicly mute to the tragedy and triumph of its role in nuclear history. I emailed Jocelyn Wilk, the university archivist, to ask if Columbia had any recent exhibits on the Manhattan Project. She said no. The clock moves a minute further and a minute back. Columbia lets its history, and all its morally ambiguous, technically interesting detail, pass it by. So let's go back. Back before the Cold War, or the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Before the bombs were tested in Los Alamos. Before the Manhattan Project as we know it began, there was a cyclotron charged with 400 volts in the basement of Pupin Hall. Columbia's place in nuclear history was, at first, accidental. From the early 1930s, Columbia was at the center of physics in the United States. 
At the forefront of Columbia's physics department was a man named George Pegram. He wrote a letter in 1951, recounting the story of his involvement. He speaks of a well-established department, one known for atomic research, where graduate students wrote their theses on neutron-related questions within physics. His, his role, as far as the Manhattan Project was concerned, largely was the placement of people. He knew everyone, practically every uh, serious physicist in the world at the time. That's John Pegram. He's George Pegram's grandson. Because of my grandfather's involvement, I certainly had an interest, and then I went undergraduate in physics at Columbia. Like Pegram's grandchild, most of the nuclear families have a legacy of science. As I looked through LinkedIn's and professors' pages, I saw just how many of the children and grandchildren of the original scientists went into physics or specialized in radiation. John Pegram, though he studied physics, ended up as a lawyer, specializing in intellectual property and patent law. Pegram was dean of graduate programs in the physics department at Columbia from 1937 to 1949, during the hotbed of nuclear development. He worked closely with the head of the nuclear fission project, John Dunning. Dunning was a professor at Columbia, beginning in 1935. The following year, he would travel to Europe, meeting the likes of Heisenberg and Bohr. The community of physicists at the time was small, and news traveled fast about research at the atomic level, a field that had not yet come to revolve around nuclear power. Columbia was the perfect place for physics research. It had the expertise, the instrumentation, and a well-connected man at the center of it all, George Pegram. Dunning was not the inventor of the cyclotron. That honor goes to Ernest Lawrence at Berkeley. A cyclotron is, essentially, a particle accelerator. Charged particles enter the machine. A voltage is applied to electrodes within the cyclotron. The particles, repulsed by and attracted to the voltage, move faster and faster, providing high energy beams for research. Dunning used the machine to speed up subatomic particles for study. Roughly contemporaneous to Lawrence, whose cyclotron served as a model, Dunning developed his own bigger cyclotron. The cyclotron weighed an estimated 65 tons and sat in the basement of Pupin Hall. The machine was incredible in its size and its power. Dunning's work with the cyclotron was, at first, motivated just by the urge for scientific discovery. It wasn't about developing a bomb. Dunning was taken with the neutron, those chargeless subatomic particles at the center of an atom. In 1938, Columbia's research moved from innocent to political when German scientists Otto Hahn, Lisa Meitner, and Fritz Strassmann discovered nuclear fission. They realized that bombarding a uranium atom with neutrons could cause the atom itself to split, generating an incredible amount of energy. News traveled fast to Columbia, where on a fateful winter night one year later, Dunning watched the future of physics unfold. On January 25, 1939, when a small group of us late in the night first observed the big green peaks on the oscilloscope screens, which meant that about 200 million electron volts were liberated as a single uranium atom was split by a slow neutron, my notebook, opening sentences, says that we believe we have observed new phenomena of far-reaching consequences there in the basement of the Pupin Laboratories. With the European results confirmed, the Columbia physicists moved to understand the far-reaching consequences of this discovery. 
George Pegram writes in his account that the release of energy from a single uranium atom splitting could, they theorized, trigger the release of nuclear energy through a chain reaction. I spoke with Richard Rhodes, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Making of the Atomic Bomb, about Columbia scientists' growing awareness of the power they had just unleashed. So much of the early work in nuclear physics was not classified. Uh, in fact, the decision to push for classification was made among the scientists who were working at Columbia, Enrico Fermi uh, and Leo Szilard, among others. Curiously, one of the ways the Soviet scientists discovered we were working on the bomb, which had become secret by, of course, a few months later, was when all the famous, famous nuclear physicists suddenly stopped publishing in, in scientific journals. Dunning put the cyclotron to work on determining the most fissile, or in unofficial terms, splittable, form of uranium possible. Two forms of uranium were tested the naturally occurring uranium-238 and uranium-235, an isotope that makes up less than 1% of natural uranium. One could be enriched and used for nuclear energy. The other was less reactive, less useful, less potent. A letter from John Dunning marks the event. Almost immediately, the applications for developing atomic power in many ways were envisioned. The possibilities for a bomb, too, gradually unfolded. In March 1941, when the final conclusive tests on separated uranium-235 were again performed in the Pupin basement, it was clear that high-level atomic power in bombs were almost a certainty. By this point, World War II was imminent, and its effect on campus was clear. Columbia became home to a number of physicists fleeing persecution by fascists in Europe. Enrico Fermi, a Nobel Prize winner, used his Nobel Award ceremony to free himself and his family from Mussolini's fascist grip over Italy. He ended up at Columbia, working on nuclear chain reactions. George Pegram recruited many of these scientists to Columbia. Shortly after Dunning's confirmation of fission, he contacted the Secretary of the Navy, to whom he explained the possible military applications of uranium fission. While government-funded research may be old hat to us now, it was practically unheard of in Pegram's time. John Pegram tells me it was an extension of the pragmatism that pervaded his grandfather's personality. Need money? Get money. Back at Columbia, the nuclear developments of the time played out in small ways on campus. Fears abounded that possible spies at Deutsch Haus and Casa Italiana were gathering intelligence on their projects. Columbia physicists worked tirelessly on their nuclear research, commissioning others on campus to support them. Pegram recruited an unlikely group of semi-scientists to move carbon between laboratories. George Pegram was the one when they needed to move all the blocks of carbon and uranium and so on, recruited the football team to do it. And it looked like the football team was just going about some unusual exercises, carrying stuff around campus, and nobody paid any attention to it. There are a handful of anecdotes like this that caught me by surprise as I worked my way through interviews and archives. I liked this one the best. In two summers in the late 40s, uh, we spent our vacation uh, at a, a small hotel out on Long Island in Center Mariches, and the other occupants of the hotel were all atomic scientists who were doing summers at Brookhaven. So uh, I, for example, uh, grew up with uh, songs such as the Cyclotronist, Cyclotronist Nightmare, 
which uh, was a, uh, made up by a group of physicists who were there that summer, and they would sing these uh, various songs about physics. So this was sort of a peculiar upbringing. Once upon a midnight dreary, the cyclotron crew was weak and weary. In walked the boss with a smile so cheery. In walked the boss with a very broad smile. Boys, he said, here's a wonderful chance. Boys, he said, it'll make you want to dance. Boys, he said, we must activate some iron. Eighty millicuries by half past nine. Eighty millicuries by half past nine. Round and round and round go the deckers. Round and round the magnet swings up. Round and round and round go the deckers. Smack in the target goes the ion beam. While life on campus remained, on the whole, collegiate, and life for academic families, on the whole, academic, the physicists working in atomic science were becoming more and more aware of the impact of their work. Rhodes tells this story of Enrico Fermi. One day, somewhere around 41, uh, Enrico Fermi went to the window in the Pupin building where he had his laboratory, this seventh or ninth story, I've forgotten which, uh, window of, of his laboratory, and looked out the window down the gray winter length of Manhattan with all its people and cars and snow on the ground and said aloud in someone else's hearing, maybe John Dunning's, a little a bomb no bigger than that, and he had cupped his hand as if he were holding a, a baseball, little a bomb no bigger than a that, and it would all disappear. Fermi and the nuclear chain reaction research would move to the University of Chicago in 1942. From there on out, the focus at Columbia was on enriching uranium, while at Chicago, it was on splitting the atom. Columbia would move some of the work out of Pupin and into a rented building on 132nd and Broadway. Upon reaching what is described as an engineering stage of research, Dunning and his fellow researchers would hand gaseous diffusion separation of the uranium to Oak Ridge National Laboratories, a center of the Manhattan Project. The practical attainment of both uranium-235 and plutonium came from the ideas and their initial development at Columbia. The Manhattan Project itself was formed in 1942. The project applied the discoveries made at Columbia, the University of Chicago, and Berkeley to the government's new focus, building atomic weaponry. Many of the Columbia physicists remained advisors for this work. Until they tested the first bomb, they really didn't know if they were going to work. So it was just a fluke of nature that it was possible to do this. When J. Robert Oppenheimer, the theoretical physicist turned Manhattan Project coordinator, recruited other physicists, he spoke only in vague terms. Still, it was almost impossible not to know what was happening. I can't tell you what we're doing, but I can tell you it will probably end this war and it may end all wars. Anyone who has taken a U.S. history class will know what happens next. The United States dropped two bombs in Japan, one over Nagasaki, the other over Hiroshima. The bomb dropped in Hiroshima was made of uranium, that very same substance tested and distilled in the Columbia cyclotron. The second was made of plutonium. Hundreds of thousands of civilians died. John Dunning and George Pegram reflected on Columbia's part in the destruction in their 1950s letters. Kara Shuxman, the ear's producer, and I went down to the New York City archives one Tuesday. We looked through dozens of pages of documents donated by the Pegrams, mostly letters and newspaper clippings intentionally preserved for posterity on durable paper. 
Much of the scientists' accounts were observational, factual and to the point, until Dunning's last paragraph. One cannot help but be profoundly humble in the face of the enormous industry with a great peacetime future. And yet, with such serious ramifications in our world, that has been evolved from Columbia Research and Columbia Men. The war ended. The cyclotron was retired in 1965. Parts of the machine were sent to the Smithsonian, but the bulky framework remained in the basement of Pubin, untouched, for decades. The cyclotron became a part of Tunneler's lore, this huge, abandoned artifact, hidden underground for anyone to visit. Photographs by one tunneler, Steve Duncan, show the cyclotron's neglect. The cyclotron is rusted, or may be covered in dirt and dust. Graffiti marks the outside. What appears to be the remains of a shelf lean up against it. The cyclotron doesn't look like an artifact. It looks like scrap metal. In 2008, Columbia destroyed what remained of the cyclotron. As there often is in the destruction of historical artifacts, there was a great hullabaloo. Physics professors protested. The New Yorker and the New York Times both ran pieces on the outrage. Columbia officials gave a variety of reasons for scrapping the cyclotron. It was too expensive to move. 90,000 to destroy, double that to preserve. They needed the space for campus expansion. In losing the cyclotron, Columbia has all but removed itself from a physical history of the Manhattan Project. Even though Columbia neglected the cyclotron, Rhodes is adamant about the preservation of these artifacts. But, but you know, you either, you either want to know what the past was about or you don't. I remember visiting it when I was researching my book back in the early 1980s, and it certainly was neglected and covered with dust. I argue for preserving the artifacts as well as the documents, precisely because the artifacts have a kind of resonance in, in one's hands that, that documents alone don't do. I, it worries me very much that people never see physical nuclear weapons anymore because they don't think of them as real. You have right. to be around a few for a while to get a sense of just what elegant but brutal things they are. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, the journal responsible for the Doomsday Clock, was started by Manhattan Project scientists. One of them, Isidore Isaac Rabbi, was a Columbia physicist recruited by Pegram before the start of World War II. The scientists involved in the Manhattan Project and the discoveries preceding it did not seek to forget their role. They sought to moderate the use of the weaponry. The experiments they did were not in and of themselves harmful or dangerous. They didn't expect to end up with a weapon of mass destruction. They worked diligently, but fearfully, on nuclear fission and nuclear reactions. I have yet to read of any physicist involved in this project that did not bear some regrets. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. They immortalized their concerns. So why, I wonder, did we destroy part of their legacy? This episode of The Ear was brought to you by MailChimp. JK, we're still not making any money. The Ear is produced by Kara Schechtman. Our favorite science enthusiast, Arminda Downey-Mavramatis, reported the story. And our favorite sound enthusiast, Jake Arlo, managed the sounds. The Ear is the official podcast of The Eye, the weekly magazine of the Columbia Daily Spectator. 
Special thanks to the CU record engineer, Andrew Sherm. Also, thank you, Emmett Warbell, for doing voice acting, and physicssongs.org for the song The Cyclotronist Nightmare. The Ear is hosted by me, Jordan Allen. As always, thank you for listening, and stay tuned for next week's episode. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud so that you can get updated when new apps arrive. And if you want to sponsor the show, totally chill. Just please email us and give us all your money. Uh, anyways, thank you for listening. Have a lovely day.